following message is presented by Community Gospel Church in Bremen, Indiana. It is our great privilege to share this ministry with you. We in no way intend for this to be a replacement for the local church. It is our prayer that this would serve as a resource to help make Jesus Christ known in our congregation and other congregations gathering across the world. For more information about Community Gospel Church, visit www.communitygospelchurch.com. All right, if you would, open your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter is on the right-hand side of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible uh, or uh, open up an electronic device, I preach out of the ESV version of the Bible. Kids, my name's Jordan. This is what your parents do every single Sunday. They come here, they listen to me, some of them sleep. I promise. And when they do sleep, we have a guy who walks through the aisles and he bops them on the head. So be warned, all right? We're glad that you're here with us today. We're glad that you could uh, be in here. I think it's good uh, that we have this opportunity to worship with our students. If they get a little restless, that's okay. We all do that, right, from time to time. Sometimes that happens. We're at 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 10 through 18. And what we know from uh, two weeks ago when we first started kind of this endeavor is that people hate waiting. Amen? They are so impatient. I'll tell you what, the other day I ordered something on Amazon. It took three days instead of two days, and I was so irate, I flipped the lazy boy over. It was a bad deal in our house, let me tell you what. Man, people hate to wait. For some reason, our impatience has been uh, kind of ministered to a little bit in regards to what we know to be true about uh, the postal system and the prime postal system. But God commands us, as we talked two weeks ago, that we are to wait, to be patient in regards to the fact that he is coming again soon. He says, I want you to wait. And as you wait, I want you to be careful how you live. I want you to live a certain way. I want you to conduct yourselves in a way that would be honoring and glorifying to me. I want to make sure that your attitude and your conduct is Christ-like. And so a few weeks ago, we learned from 2 Peter chapter 3, three principles on how to live while we wait for the Lord's return. The first one was that we should always keep Christ's return at the forefront of our mind. It should always be something that we think about, that we, that we dwell on, if you will. The second thing that we talked about was that we should know that people are going to laugh at us when we believe that Christ is coming back again soon. People are going to look at us and they're going to make fun of us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Then we talked about how uh, God guarantees it, the third thing. And this week, there's two final principles that we have that we need to look at at how we are to live waiting for the Lord's return. Let's look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10. He says this, But the day of the Lord will come. It's going to happen. And the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people, Peter asks, are you to be? You are to be people who live a life of holiness and godliness. You are to wait and to hasten the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved. And the heavenly bodies will melt and they will burn. Let's stop there for just a second. The first thing that Peter tells us that we need to do in order to live while we wait for the Lord's return is to live a holy and godly life. 
We are to live a holy and godly life because the day of the Lord is coming. Christ is coming back. He's going to judge the earth this second advent. And he says it will come like a thief in the night. And we might think to ourselves, man, Peter is really good at putting words like on the page. Man, he's so clever, but he stole those from Jesus in Matthew chapter 24. Paul said actually the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5. We know that Christ's second coming is going to be swift. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be unexpected. And it will be terrible for those people who don't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. But for those of us who know Jesus who have declared that we're sinners and believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior, that His blood that was shed on the cross covers our sin, this is a day of rejoicing. Oh, it will be amazing for us. And Peter says, though, as you look to these things, I want to tell you three truths about this final fire. And these are going to terrify you if you don't know Jesus, but man, these are going to encourage you if you know Jesus. Number one, he says, the first thing that's going to happen when this final fire comes is he says, the heavens will disappear with a roar. All my little kids who are in here today say, rawr. That's so fun. Look at your parents and say, rawr. That's exactly what the word means in Hebrew. Rawr. Isn't that crazy? Why would Peter use such a word like that? Well, he says this earth's atmosphere and the sky above, that's going to go away. And finally, God's going to create all things new, all the broken things he's going to create new. And roar, if you want to circle that in your Bible, it's often used for its sound. It's like a whizzing or like a crackling sound, kind of like when you're by the campfire and you hear like the logs are burning. It's exactly what it'll be. We'll hear kind of this whizzing and crackling sound, and then God's voice is going to come. It's going to be thunderous, and it's going to explode, and it's going to be deep, and he's going to say, I'm done. And it will go away. The heavens will go away. And finally, God's going to create all things new. Isn't that amazing? He's going to do awesome things there. The heavens will disappear with the roar. First thing that will happen. Second thing, he says, all these elements that, uh, that God doesn't like, that have been kind of damaged by sin, they will be destroyed by fire. He says heavenly bodies, and it would, it would be something that we look at in regards to this passage, and we think actual people like bodies, like actual people bodies. That's not necessarily true. Those heavenly bodies that he talks about, he's referring to four elements, the earth, the air, fire, and water. Those are going to be destroyed to make way for the new heaven and new earth that Revelation chapter 1 talks about. Now, it's interesting here. If you're reading this passage of Scripture, in that day and age, there was these guys, they were called Stoics, and they thought they had life all figured out. And these Stoics, man, they thought they were so smart. They thought that their ways were better than anybody else's ways. And they believed that the earth and the universe was made up by those four elements. So what Peter says is, when those elements are going to go away, he says that our God is better than your God. And because our God is better than your God, he's going to destroy these things and he make all things new. So it's fascinating here that we see this, that all these various elements are going to be destroyed by fire. I was supposed to read Psalm 18 and I didn't, but whatever, we'll keep going. Okay. Sometimes Pastor Jordan makes mistakes. Isn't that crazy? I know that's hard to believe. You should ask my wife. She says, I never make mistakes, but sometimes I do. Look at the third thing. First thing, heavens will disappear with the roar. Second thing, various elements are going to be destroyed by fire. Third thing, everything will be exposed for what it is. This is encouraging to us as believers, but it's a difficult phrase to translate. In, P, in, in short, Peter's saying that all the works that people do on this earth for themselves will be exposed. Everything that was done for themselves will be exposed and everything that was done for God will be exposed. And all these people on earth that counted this earth as a place for themselves, God will reveal it. 
And he will say, it was useless. All your works that you did for yourself was useless, but all the works that we do for the living God, that's important. I love what the Bible says in Revelation chapter 20. He says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth, the sky fled from his presence and there was no place for them. So all three of those things give us great purpose, great encouragement to know that Jesus is coming back again soon. These truths either encourage us or they terrify us as non-believers. And what Peter's saying is, listen, just as God intervened before in the past, he's going to intervene Again, through fire. There's no second chances. There's no escape for those who reject. So you got to choose wisely. Well, how does that tie into being holy and godly? Well, that's a good question. So knowing these things, Peter turns believers and he asks this rhetorical question. If you look at the text in verse uh, 13, he says, what kind of people should you be? Believers already knew the answer to that, but Peter's stirring them up with sincere minds by way of trembling. We learn that in verse one. And he says, listen, this is the two ways to live knowing this final fire is coming. Now, this is important. Mom and dad, as you model what it looks like to be godly in front of your students and us as a church, as we model what it looks like to be godly from other people for other people, okay? People are watching us and we need to make sure that we're living accordingly. Peter says the first thing that you have to do is you have to live a holy life. And a holy life is a saved life. In 1 Peter, he already talked about this chapter 1. But in Leviticus, way back in the Old Testament, he said to be holy is to be absolutely perfect and it's impossible without God to be perfect. And God says, I want you to be holy because I am holy. I want you to be distinct from any other nation. And as believers, we are to be different than any other people, but we can't be different unless we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. If we have not confessed with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, we're no different than the rest of the world. We don't have any ability to be different than the rest of the world. So we have to trust Jesus Christ over and over again. The Bible tells us, I want you to be holy. And to be holy has to start with salvation. That I'm a sinner. I deserve death. But in Christ, I am saved. I am set apart. He looks at me and he says, you are important. Holiness only results from a right relationship with God through faith in Christ. If we've not trusted in Christ in faith from our sins, then the pursuit of holiness is a vain, useless pursuit. So I want you to trust Christ. If you're here this morning, you're listening online, never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, very simple, in front of you, little blue bookmark, you can go ahead and pick that up, walk through that, tells you exactly how to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Okay, well, uh, we've done that, all right? So you're sitting here and you're saying, okay, I, I understand salvation, I've trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. All right, now you gotta live the godly life. Oh, now you gotta be set apart. Well, I thought I could just trust Jesus and I'd be good. That doesn't work that way. Just because you're in my family doesn't mean that you get to do whatever you want. My kids say amen. Right? Just because you're part of my, just because your last name's a muck doesn't mean you get to go run one. So he says, here, listen, you got to live a godly life. You got to implement those truths of salvation in all areas of your everyday life. Believers aren't called to just sit and wait for Christ's return. We're to live accordingly. We're to live on mission, implementing the truth of the gospel and telling people about Christ but also in building up the church. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus said, this gospel must be preached to all the nations. And in Peter, verse 13, he says, while you're waiting for a new heaven and a new earth, your righteousness needs to dwell. So believers recognize their position in Christ and we realize it sets us apart from the world and then we implement accordingly. But you didn't answer my question. What does it look like to be godly? What does godliness look like? Well, godliness 
in our English translation, means it's a proper response to the things of God which produces obedient, righteous living. It's to be like Jesus when he walked the earth. He was an embodiment of a pure uh, God, God in human form who always did what pleased God. Believers follow Christ's example, declaring every decision to glorify God. Here's what godliness boils down to. Godliness boils down to this. Godliness is when we're more impressed with the things of God over ourselves. It's not just a suggestion, it's a command. So to be godly means to put your spouse before yourself. It's seeking her or his best before you seek your own best. To be godly means that you're going to serve your boss or whoever is over you to the best of your ability. It means as a student that you're going to get straight A's. You're going to do your best to, get to your ability. You're going to try your best. You're going to do all things to the glory of God. You're going to make sure that he gets the credit for all of those things. Now, I know some of you are like, I'll never get straight A's. And I, amen to that, right? But did you do your best? Man, we look at it in our lives. For those of us who find ourselves retired, are we just sitting around waiting for the Lord's return? Are we making the most of our time? Are we putting into practice the gifts and abilities that we have, making sure that people understand who Jesus is, but also what Jesus was all about? It's funny how many of us, if we were truly honest, we just sit around and wait for the Lord's return, but we're not active in becoming like Jesus. It means we pick up our Bible and we spend time reading it. It means that we spend time praying. It means that we spend time participating in church. It means that there's no excuse that we have inside of ourselves that says, God, my ways are more important than your ways. It's everything is done for the glory of God. When I get up in the morning, I say, God, this is for you and for you alone. My life, as Paul says, is to be a walking worshiper, a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to the Lord. Everything that comes out of my mouth, everything that comes in through my ears, everything that my hands and feet find to do has to be done for the glory of God. How do I live a godly life? I become like Jesus Christ and I strive to do that in all I think, say and do. That's what Peter says. He says, I want you to live that life, but you can't do it unless you trust Jesus Christ. So I got to live this holy, pure life. All right, well, Peter, I think I'm starting to get it. But what else does that mean? Well, let's look at verse 14. Therefore, now you know all these things. Beloved, dearly loved ones of God, set apart for a specific purpose. Since you're waiting for these things and you're being diligent in these things, I want you to be found by him without spot or blemish and also be at peace. I want you to count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul did. And Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in these matters. And there are some things, and we say amen to this, that are hard to understand. Some people are ignorant and unstable. They twist Paul's words to their own destruction and they do uh, the other scriptures too as well. But you, my brothers, oh, you got to be opposite. Look what he says. He says, as you're living a holy life, striving to be like Jesus Christ and all you think, say and do, I want you to be wise and grounded. As you look forward to God's promises of bringing a new heaven and new earth, you need to live the changed life. And Peter, look at this. He breaks down what it looks like more and more to live a holy, righteous, godly life. This is in preparation for eternal living. This is what it looks like, Peter says, to be wise. Number one, I'm going to be diligent in godliness. I'm going to be diligent in godliness. Peter encourages believers be diligent. It's used uh, in 2 Peter chapter 1, as well as uh, uh, verse 5 through 7, 10 and 15 to encourage believers to moral purity. Now you could circle that word diligence. It means not becoming lazy or complacent since Christ hasn't returned yet. 
How many times do we become lazy and complacent because Christ hasn't returned yet? I'll go to church next week. I'll go to church next month. I'll, I'll go to that Bible study next week, right? I'll, I'll serve my boss tomorrow, right? Today, I'm going to be a poor worker. Tomorrow, I'll do better, right? And so what he says here is he's, no, listen, you got to live in anticipation with the fact that Christ is coming again soon. So the question on the table is, am I being diligent in doing the things that impress God, or am I more concerned with doing the things that impress myself? That's a good question. As you strive to be godly, godliness comes when you are more impressed that you did something because God got the glory than you got the glory. How many times do we do this, right? Hey, I did that, right? Oh, look, look at that. I did that, right? Like, you did your job. Good job. Congratulations. You gave the glory to yourself instead of giving the glory to God. Peter says, I want you to be diligent with giving God the glory in all you think, say, and do. Hey, hun, come check this out. I took all the dishes out of the dishwasher. You're welcome. You just got the acclimates and the praise that you deserved, right? That's not how it works. Hey, hun, come check this out. I made our bed today. Isn't it amazing? I saw this the other day on social media. I thought it was so funny. This guy, he, kept, he, uh, he, makes, his, uh, he makes their bed, their, uh, his, his, his wife and his bed, but he doesn't know what to do with the throw pillows. So he just stacks them up into little stacks and every single day he puts a new configuration on the bed. I'm stealing that, right? <laughs> so it's, do we give ourselves glory? Do we give, we, hey boss, come check this out. Look at the great job that I did. Did you get the glory or did God get the glory, Right? We got to really unpack this. Diligence means that I am more impressed that God gets the glory than inflating myself. So he says, you got to be diligent, making sure that godliness is something that God gets the glory for. And then look at this. He says, you also need to live without spot or blemish. Now, this is a description of false teachers. Those false teachers in chapter two, verse 13, had blots and blemishes. And Peter says, believers, you're called to be completely different than that. Here to be spotless and blameless like Jesus, who is a lamb without blemish or spot. That's 1 Peter chapter 1. That was a term that was used for a suitable animal sacrifice. That was a term that we look at in the text that Paul uses in Romans 12. Living sacrifices who strive for moral purity, who strive for integrity. When Peter looks at us, he says, live without spot and blemish. He says, you are the same person in the dark that you are in the day, and you're the same person in the day as you are in the dark. If you were to talk to me, or if I were to talk to people who are around you at church, and I would say, hey, what do you, what do you think about uh, this person? You, you know, he sits next to you or whatever. And they gave me an answer, right? But then I go to your job and I talk to those people and they're like, whoa, that is not the person I know, right? That means there's spots and blemishes in your life. You should be the same person who you are in this building as you are in your job. You should be the same person in your job as you are in your home. You should be the same person in your home as you are out in the world. You should be without spot or blemish. You should be like Jesus, but so oftentimes we reserve or we compartmentalize our faith and we say, oh, I'll be like Jesus here at church, right? Because I want people to think that I'm a good person, right? And then when I go to my job, I can do whatever I want. I can act however I want. Or when I go home and I, I, you know, I discipline my kids in an ungodly way, like they won't see that because that's behind closed doors. No, Jesus knows, all right? And he doesn't know like Santa knows, right? Jesus looks at us and he knows all things because he knows the status of our heart. And he's looking at us and he realizes what's going on in here. And this was his biggest complaint with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were so polished on the outside, but inside they were a hot mess. And Jesus says, you are so quick to polish the outside, but the inside is completely dirty. And how often do we do that? Jesus says, I want you to get a heart change before the external change. 
Christ's character is at stake here. And our integrity as believers stands to be like Christ as a pattern or goal. I love uh, what H.G. Uh, Bosch, old uh, 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 theologian, says. He tells us to be uh, without spot or blemish. I found this the other day. Man, I think this is so cool. You know, there's in the northeastern Europe. Kids, you're going to love this, all right? There's this animal that lives in the forest. They're called ermines. They're, they're, they're cool. Isn't that cute? Everybody say, aww. A little ermines. Isn't that a cute little creature? He's a small little animal. He's known for his snow-covered white fur coat in the winter. It protects him against anything that would get it dirty. Now, there's these hunters out there say, uh-oh. Oh, man, here comes these hunters. And they don't set a snare to catch them, but instead they find his home in a rock or a hollow in any old tree, and they smear the entrance and the interior with grime, and then they set their dogs loose to find these ermines. And the ermine flees towards home, but doesn't enter because it's dirty. They're like, I ain't going in there. I can't go in there. That's gross. And so as they uh, flee from their home, rather than get their coats dirty, they're trapped by these dogs and captured while, per, uh, while preserving their purity. And for the ermines, purity is more precious than life. Whoa. So what we learn here about these little creatures is sometimes, and Paul, if he was here, and Peter, if he was here, he would say, listen, my life is not important as being pure in the eyes of the Lord. I'm more concerned about being pure for Jesus Christ and they take my life, so be it. If that's how it's going to go down, that's fine. But what we see here is godliness is greater than worldliness. Believers don't deserve, uh, believers' desire is to strive to die pure lives. Even if people persecute us, even if people push back, we are more concerned to be like Christ. Am I being diligent and being like Christ, or am I more concerned about myself? Oh, that's, an, that's, that's a tough question. Number three, look at what he says. He says, and then if you are these things, you will be at peace with God. So to be wise is to be diligent in godliness, living without spot or blemish, making sure that I'm pure, having, being a man or woman of integrity, and then being at peace with God. And Peter says here, when you're at peace with God, you are actively striving to eliminate sin. Your aim and goal is perfection. What Peter tells us here is, he says, an overwhelming peace comes through obedience. And one reason we live in tension and stress is because we're constantly trying to justify our own sin and fight the Holy Spirit instead of submit to him. The reason why we find ourselves so stressed, the reason why we find ourselves so uh, wrapped tight is because we're so concerned about what's going on in the world instead of being concerned about what's going on in the word. Amen? Okay, so oftentimes you find yourself stressed because you spent more time flipping and scrolling on your phone than you have flipping and scrolling on the Word. See, it's funny how we say, I don't have time. No, you have time. You just haven't prioritized your time well. See, because there are so many things that we find ourselves where we are just in the thick of it, and we're thinking to ourselves, man, this is where I'm at. This is what I'm doing. This is what's going on. I'm stressed. I'm frustrated. And, and God says that's because you're spending all your time here, and I use this word sparingly, in the muck, right? But you're not in the word because you haven't prioritized well. To be at peace with God means that I'm populated with his word, not populated with the world. And Peter says, listen, if you think that God is slow in coming back, just understand that he wants you to be diligent with, diligent with his word because that's where you find peace with God. I love that Paul backs up Peter here, right? 
He kind of takes a little bit of a transition and a turn. And he says, listen, Peter's words are hard to understand. Now, why would he say that? Well, the early church considered Paul's letters here to be inspired by God, even though some of the things he said were hard to understand. What some things are they talking about there? Good question. Most of the time, the people said Paul's words are hard to understand were the justification of, of faith because for false teachers, they thought that you could just go out and do whatever you want if you're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. You just go live however you want to live. You conduct yourselves however you want to conduct yourselves. And Paul says, no, hold on a second. Uh, and that's not, that's not what it looks like. And Peter says the same, the same thing. He says, you know how to be wise, diligent in godliness, without spot or blemish, at peace with God. But I want to talk to you about what it means to be grounded. This is what we need to know. In order to be grounded in God's word, we're wise with it, but what do we, what do, we do in grounded? This is how we live knowing the final fire is coming. Number one, don't be ignorant in regards to the things of God. Ignorance is the lack of knowledge and understanding primarily used by people who haven't received significant or sufficient information or instruction regarding properly interpreting the scriptures and they're prone to error. One commentator says, sometimes people are ignorant because they don't know there's a need to learn and something, while other times people are ignorant because they've chosen not to learn something they need to know. I think Hosea says it a little better. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. I also reject you. You have every uh, source of information at your disposal. It's at your fingertips. And sinful ignorance is willingly rejecting the knowledge that God wants us to have. It's when we wake up in the morning and we think to ourselves, but my way is better than your way. But my words are better than your words. And God commands us <clears throat> to repent of our ignorance and seek him with all of our hearts. I love what Proverbs says. He says, you who are simple, gain prudence. And you who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Every time the Bible calls us as believers to listen and to hear, God's giving us a chance to trade human ignorance for biblical wisdom. The question is, do we let him? Do we let him do that? Or do we say, God, no, my ways are better than your ways. My word is better than your word. Every time the Bible commands believers to listen and to hear, God's giving us a chance to trade our human wisdom for his biblical wisdom. So don't be ignorant to the things of God. Don't shelf your Bible. Don't, don't hinder your prayers. He says, listen, and the second thing, don't be unstable. To be unstable describes one who's not firmly rooted in biblical teaching and easily misled. Both ignorance and unstable are terms that were used to classify false teachers who twisted scriptures. Now it says when they twist the scriptures, it's kind of like dislocating uh, your shoulder. It's, it's when you take uh, these limbs and, and you dislocate them through faulty methods of interpretation. We cannot, as believers, twist scriptures to suit our own purposes because God says, I will always meet that with judgment. It's not my word, it's his word. It's not my interpretation, it's his interpretation. There's one meaning in scripture, multiple applications. And so what he says is, well, we as believers may not fully understand all scriptures, we cannot be unstable in twisting them to formulate our own opinions. So ultimately, what that means is, when I study God's word, I never ask, what does this passage mean to me? I never ask that question. It's not what it means to me because I'll twist it and I'll put it in my own little box and I'll formulate it however I want to formulate it. No, it's what does it say and how do I conform to that word? 
Now look at verse 17 and 18 as he closes. He says, You therefore, beloved believers in Jesus Christ, knowing this beforehand, I want you to take care that you are not carried away with the errors of lawless people and lose your own stability. But you should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be uh, both the glory now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Spurgeon said Peter ends on two trumpet blasts. One is from heaven to earth. Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the other is from earth to heaven. To him be the glory both now and forever. And when Peter addresses the beloved, he says, I want you to be forewarned of the dangers of the false teacher's tactics and aware that Jesus, as he came once, is coming again soon. We can say that there are four meanings to the word amen, if you want to circle that in your uh, Bible. It expresses the desire of the heart, number one the affirmation of our faith, number two, the joy of our heart, number three, and a declaration, number four, of resolution. Under the Old Testament law, amen, was said that the declaration of the curses, but now under the New Testament covenant in Christ, we say amen at the announcement of great blessing and praise to God. So how does this close? What does this look like? This is what Peter's ultimately saying. It's Christmas time, and we're looking at this uh, second advent that Christ is coming again soon. The prayer here for Peter is that we would continue to become mature, that we would not be ignorant in the ways and the will of God, in the ways and the will of his word. We would search and study scripture. We would be students of the word, that we would pray intently, listening to sound teachers, applying that knowledge to our everyday life, not going, not hearing something and going away and doing the opposite of what God commands us. And Peter says, as we do these things, may we see that Jesus is Lord, the affirmation of your faith. You'll have validation of your faith, that he is divine and omnipotent, that he knows all, that he is sovereign over all things, that he is Savior, the one who accomplished humanity's salvation. This is the candle of hope today, and hope pushes us to Jesus Christ, to him alone belongs glory in this age and the new eternal age to come. And so we say amen because we pray that these things be so. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your truth in 2 Peter about the fact that um, we are called and commanded uh, by Scripture uh, to live accordingly, waiting for your return. That we are to set our hearts and our minds on the things of you and not the things of ourselves. God, our prayer this morning was our same prayer that we prayed two weeks ago, that we would always keep your return at the forefront of our minds, regardless of the fact that people in our society laugh at these truths. We know that you've guaranteed it, and we need your help. For those that don't know you as Lord and Savior, who have never uh, declared that they are sinners, confessed that they're sinners, declared that you are uh, Lord, that your blood covers their sin, I pray that they make the greatest Uh, decision that they could ever make, and they would surrender their life to you in faith, that they would trust the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and that they would live accordingly and live a godly life, one like Christ, that is lived in adoration of who you are, what you've done, and what you will do. I pray, God, that you would help us to be wise. We pray for discernment on how you want us to live in our jobs, in our homes, that we would be the same men and women who we are here in this place as we are in our other daily endeavors, that we would be grounded in the truths of your word 
and that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be so prevalent in our lives that we would declare it with our mouths to those who need to hear it the most, but also that we would be men and women who are known to build one another up and not tear each other down. As we see this day approaching God, as we see these two trumpet blasts at the very end of the letter of Peter, we pray, God, that you would help us uh, to uh, have a resounding amen, uh, that uh, our hope would be on you, the things that we can't control or are out of our grasp or the things that we don't understand, we would leave in your hands that we know that you're coming back again soon. We place our hope and our trust in you and help us to live accordingly. It's in your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Community Gospel Church podcast. If you would like to support this ministry financially, simply log on to communitygospelchurch.com and click the Contribute tab.